Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Now, I've covered city council meetings as a reporter over the years, although the last one was a long time ago. But there is a particular kind of uncomfortable exchange that I remember well. It happens in that part of the meeting that's the public question period, when one person is up at the microphone. Again, like everybody knows this person. They know what they're going to say. And that person shares their thoughts about the one issue they feel so passionate about. I'm proposing that people in Whistler don't even realize that natural gas is a bad thing. You know, the, the term itself, natural gas, implies benign. It implies beauty, nature. Do you, do you agree with this sentiment? Um, Mr. Dearden, the three minutes are up. No, I think most people know that it's a fossil fuel. And I think that that's pretty clear to us as we discuss it. Now, the first voice you heard there, that's Eddie Dearden. He is grilling Mayor Jack Crompton at a recent council meeting in Whistler, B.C. I'm Laura Lynch, by the way, and this is What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. Today, we're starting with a solution that some call semantics, but others say it's key to pushing climate action forward. A little later, another story about the power of words, featuring the creator of the 15-minute city idea. He's faced death threats in the wake of misrepresentations of his concept, ones that he labels insane. What on earth? Rachel Sanders is here with our first story. Hi, Rachel. Hey, Laura. So what did you think when you heard the mayor of Whistler say that most people know that natural gas is a fossil fuel? Well, it reminded me of those other times when we've talked on the program about natural gas, about the term natural gas. And that's when we learned that there's actually some confusion around the term. That's right. And that's what has Eddie Dearden fired up. He is a man on a mission. For the past few months, he's been showing up at Whistler Council meetings like the one you just heard and writing letters to other cities around B.C. asking them to replace the term natural gas with fossil gas in all official documents. He thinks that change in terminology could help Canada transition faster to clean energy. Okay, I want to get into that in a few minutes because sounds like it's going to be interesting. <laughs> but first, I want to hear more about Eddie. Why is he spending his evenings at council meetings talking about natural gas. Right. Okay. So Eddie trained as a chemical engineer at the University of Queensland in Australia, and he used to have what he calls a pretty lucrative career in the coal industry. But around 10 years ago, he moved to Vancouver. And unfortunately for my career, uh, the good people there taught me all about this thing called climate change. And I was really shocked and you know, that was long before heat domes and catastrophic fires. I, I was able to convince myself with the data that this was a really happening and a threat. So I quit my whole career as a fossil chemical engineer and I retrained in sustainable architecture. 
from the coal industry to sustainable architecture, which I guess is things like passive homes, heat pumps, that kind of thing. Energy efficiency, that's right. Right. Okay. But that's quite a career switch. It is. Yeah. Eddie wanted to spend his career working on climate solutions. But then in 2021, something happened that made him want to do even more. And you'll remember this, Laura, this event he's talking about, it was the heat dome that hit Western North America at the end of June that year. I have a little device called a thermal imaging camera. And it got really hot here. Like Whistler rarely gets above mid-30s. And it was at 42 to 44 degrees Celsius that week. There was surfaces outside like 70 plus degrees Celsius. Um, it was a really terrifying night for me, the hottest night, because um, I, I had a one-year-old daughter at the time. And it was 30 degrees Celsius in our house in the middle of the night. So I was a little bit worried if she would be okay. Turned out she was, but... I was a bit scared. Wow, I can hear that coming back to him, that really strong memory. I certainly remember it very well, those those nights when you just couldn't sleep. I ended up going down and sleeping on the floor in the basement because mm. I finally found a good place, and, and my dog, too, because she was just suffering with so much heat. So what did Eddie do? after that heat dome? Well, he says he started talking to the clients of his sustainable home design company about natural gas. In the months following the heat dome, I was putting the hard word on my clients not to use natural gas, as I called it in 2021. And, and they would really resist. They just started saying the most amazing things back to me, like, but it's natural, or it's green, it's good like smart, educated people, and their words were showing that they did not know what natural gas is. So by the end of 2021, I'd found this term that I believe is much more accurate, which is fossil gas. And from there onwards, I would tell my clients, don't use fossil gas. And I had close to 100% success convincing my clients not to use fossil gas. All right. So there's Eddie trying to convince clients not only to use the term fossil gas, but not to use whether you call it fossil gas or natural gas, just not to use it for heating and cooking because it's a fossil fuel. It comes out of the ground and it's composed mostly of methane, right? Right. And natural gas has major climate impacts. Jason Wong is a senior analyst at the Pembina Institute on the Electricity Program. It directly creates emissions when it is combusted and when it's leaked or when it's vented in production. When it goes straight into the atmosphere, it's more potent than carbon dioxide. So it's more able to capture and trap heat in Earth's atmosphere compared to carbon dioxide. Now, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, or CAP, says natural gas can play an important role in reducing GHG emissions both in Canada and globally because it's cleaner to burn than coal. But a number of studies have cast doubt on that idea. Those leaks that Jason Wong just mentioned, a recent study in the journal Environmental Research Letters showed that even small methane leaks during drilling, processing, or transportation can put natural gas on par with coal when it comes to emissions intensity. Wow. I asked CAP about that, and they didn't respond by our deadline. But last year, more than 100 countries, including Canada, committed to cutting methane emissions. And all, all that is why some governments around the world are actually banning natural gas hookups in new buildings. That's right. And Eddie Dearden wants to see more of that kind of action from cities. And he thinks there would be more public support for that if cities called natural gas fossil gas to make its origins clear. So that's why he's been writing those letters. 
Okay, so Eddie says he's seen a difference in his client's reaction to the two terms. But does language really make that much of a difference when it comes to climate action? Well, there is research to back up this idea that the terminology around this fuel affects public perception about it. Recently, an environmental group called the Clean Air Task Force surveyed people in several European countries, more than 1,500 people in each, about what came to mind when they heard the words natural gas and methane. Here's James Torito with the task force. In particular, people associated methane with greenhouse gas or cows or cattle. And then they associated natural gas with cooking or heating. And that kind of coincides with other research that's gone on in in the U.S. as well that's shown the influence of word choice on people's attitudes towards how they perceive the gas and the challenges with it. Well, so why isn't Eddie campaigning for the fuel to be called methane gas? Good question. I asked him that. He points out that natural gas doesn't just contain methane. It has other gases in it, like ethane and benzene. So he thinks fossil gas is more accurate. Okay, so the the term fossil gas, is it popping up in more places? Okay, buckle up, because there is (laughs) a long list. (laughs) Oh no, here we go. A lot of U.S. climate action groups say fossil gas these days. And a couple of Democratic politicians in Oregon have also used it in a official context as well. And there was a lot of discussion about the terms natural gas and fossil gas among the members of the New York State Climate Action Council last year. There was a lot of back and forth. And in the end, they used the term fossil natural gas <laughs> in a recent climate plan. They decided That's that way to do it. Yeah, they decided that was the way to be as clear as possible. Here in Canada, a lot of climate advocacy groups use the term, including an environmental group called Equiterre in Quebec and the Conservation Council of New Brunswick and Manitoba's Climate Action Team. Okay. (laughs) And that's not all. Oh, there's more, all right. (laughs) Here's an international example. Last December, the Language Council of Sweden made an official recommendation that fossil gas should be the primary term used to describe natural gas. That council is a government department that makes recommendations recommendations about the best, most accurate use of Swedish words. So I called up Linnea Hanel, a language expert with the council, to ask why they recommend saying fossil gas. The challenges we're facing in relation to sustainable development are so all-encompassing that it's important that many people in society are engaged, not only scientific experts. So it's important that the knowledge is as accessible as possible and the language to share this knowledge and discuss this knowledge is as accessible as possible to as many people as possible. So Eddie's not alone. He has allies in his call for a change of terminology. What kind of response has he had from the municipal governments he's written to or stood up in front of there? Right. I emailed a few of the cities that Eddie contacted. Powell River said there's been no discussion about Eddie's letter or a change in language. Victoria said there's been no decision made about Eddie's request. North Vancouver said staff is considering Eddie's, quote, thoughtful suggestion as they continue to refine messaging pertaining to climate action, unquote. And as for Whistler, at that council meeting last month, Eddie was pretty relentless as he asked Mayor Jack Crompton why council hasn't accepted his suggestion. The mayor said Whistler Council has been working on a climate action plan. Plan, which they think is more important than terminology. We feel strongly that the most important things we can do is take substantive action on that, and that's where we're spending our time. So uh, increasing our transit service, building better buildings. 
So Whistler Council is saying taking action on climate change is the most important thing. Right. And they're not the only ones who say that actions are more important than words. I'm pretty skeptical of all of these attempts to rename things, saying global heating instead of global warming, saying climate emergency instead of saying climate change, saying tar sands instead of oil sands. In all of these cases, it's been presumed that a change in wording will influence public opinion and therefore policy, uh, and none of them have proven to be the case. So that's Mark Lee. He's with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Okay, that's a different view. What does he think will influence policy then? Here's what he said about that. I think it's important that at every level, at every conversation, at every city, at every provincial meeting, people are trying to raise these issues. But I I think it's a tall order to think that just changing the language is going to fundamentally change the game. I think there's a lot more that needs to be done, and I would focus more on political organizing. Uh, I think we are going to need civil disobedience and protest. So Mark points to the Indigenous-led protest against the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion as one example of the kind of protest he thinks will lead to change. But Laura, here's the thing. Metro Vancouver, which is a federation of 21 municipalities in southwest BC, does use the term fossil gas in some official documents. Uh (laughs) I emailed Metro Vancouver to ask why. I sent them an example. It was a letter they'd sent to the BC Utilities Commission. And a spokesperson replied to say, recognizing that many residents are unaware that natural gas is a fossil fuel, Metro Vancouver and other organizations are increasingly using the term fossil natural gas. In some cases, such as the letter you've referenced, Metro Vancouver has used the term fossil gas rather than the colloquial term of natural gas. The email also said, ensuring common understanding of basic terms is fundamental to climate literacy and building support for climate action. Okay, words do matter. I mean, you and I are in the business of using words all the time. So yeah, they matter. So Metro Vancouver thinks language is key to climate literacy and climate literacy is key to getting the public on board with climate action. That's right. And Linnea Hanel from the Swedish Language Council agrees. It's absolutely correct that we need to talk about other issues as well. It would be a catastrophe if we wasted these years to just talk about semantics. But I do think that semantics has a role in this as well. And I do think we have time to think through what kind of language we use to face these challenges. So I think we have time for both. Useful terminology can make a difference to these vital conversations that we need to have. All right, that's the government of Sweden. What about the government of Canada? Well, I asked Natural Resources Canada about Eddie's campaign. They emailed a response that said the term natural gas is generally accepted terminology used by industry, governments, and academia. The statement also said, quote, as for language shifting from this term to others, we are constantly monitoring how discussions evolve. And, quote, To meet Canada's net zero objectives, today's use of gas is getting increasingly clean as companies work towards minimizing and abating emissions associated with its production, transportation and usage. Okay, and what do those in the oil and gas industry say about this campaign of eddies? I contacted Fortis BC, that's a British Columbia-based utility that provides natural gas as well as electricity. They declined to do an interview for this story and didn't respond directly to my question about terminology, but they said, quote, Fortis BC has been working to increase the supply of low-carbon and renewable energy, like renewable natural gas derived from organic sources, 
and that it's looking at other, quote, low-carbon energy options that it can deploy through its system in the future, including hydrogen, end quote. All right. Well, we've covered Fortis BC's claims about renewable natural gas in the past. And listeners, you can hear that episode by searching CBC What on Earth? What's the deal with renewable natural gas? It's an interesting episode. And we'll continue to look into these questions in the coming months. But meanwhile, Rachel, I'm on the edge of my seat. What is Eddie's next move? Well, he was back at a Whistler Council meeting a few days ago asking again why City Council won't accept his suggestion. And this time he got a specific reason. A staff member said the term they use for this fuel is guided by the provincial and federal governments. So as long as those governments say natural gas, City Council will as well. So Eddie asked the council to ask those governments to change their terminology, and the mayor suggested Eddie write another letter to council asking them to do that. So that's what he's going to do. Oh, my goodness. Bureaucracy, right? You only you, you always need just that one more piece of paper <laughs> one to more get letter. where you want to go. One more letter. <laughs> that's right. Mayor Jack Crompton also emailed me to say, quote, knowing our community is alive to the issue and equally passionate about the needs of our changing world is heartening and critical for reaching our goals. But, you know, Eddie is not waiting around for Whistler Council to send a letter. He's taking his campaign higher on his own. He's just sent another letter to BC's provincial government asking them to adopt the term fossil gas in official documents and legislation. He's even drafted a private member's bill that he calls the Fossil Gas Clarification Act 2023. Wow, he can't stop. He just can't stop. He can't stop. I wonder if he ever thought about running for office himself. He might. He might. might. (laughs) Uh, I emailed the province of BC for their response to Eddie's letter, and I haven't had one yet. But ultimately, Eddie says clear language will help regular people take climate action in their own lives. Regular people are not thinking about this. They're busy trying to pay their rent or mortgage. They have lives to live. And if people can just easily see what a fossil carbon product is, at least they can make a choice. You know, it's like if you didn't label fat or you didn't label sugar on food products, then you have no idea if what you're eating is horrible for your health. It's the exact same principle. We just need to get people informed of the fossils in their life. And it's clear that Eddie is doing his best to inform people on a subject that he feels so passionately about. Thank you for telling us about Eddie, Rachel, and for all of the context around this. It was super interesting. Thank you, Laura. Now, we'd love to hear your thoughts about this. What do you think of Eddie's argument? Do you think changing the terminology could affect policy on natural gas or fossil gas or natural fossil gas in Canada? Email us. We'd love to hear from you, earth at cbc.ca. Sounds like wedding bells, doesn't it? Well, wedding planning can be a huge task. Finding a venue, a photographer, a caterer, spending thousands of dollars. But here's the thing. The greenhouse gases emitted by a wedding can be just as massive as the price tag. So as wedding fairs pop up across the country, we're asking, how can you make the big day climate friendly? What on Earth story producer Danielle Piper went searching for answers. That's Mark Libby celebrating his recent nuptials to Regina Palomar in downtown Ottawa. Regina and Mark spent the last year planning their wedding. They say they're committed to helping the planet, and that includes cutting down on emissions. 
The biggest thing we're doing that is maybe a little bit different from some couples is that we're growing our own wedding flowers um, and we're making our own wedding arrangements. But why grow your own flowers? Why not just order a bouquet and a few centerpieces like everyone else? Flowers, from what I understand, can have quite an environmental footprint depending on where they are grown in the world. If they're grown outside of Canada or outside of your little local area, you have to have them shipped in and refrigerated, um, which is quite expensive, um, you know, from a CO2 point of view, like has a large footprint. For Gina and Mark, it was easy to think of ways to cut emissions, but others might need a little help from an eco-conscious wedding planner like Holly Perrier. I initially got very interested in weddings and events, and then I started digging deeper into the industry and just saw how wasteful it was. Holly says that planning a climate-friendly wedding all comes down to priorities. First, we would start with identifying what eco-conscious values are important to you and which path you want to go down. Regina and Mark, who planned their wedding themselves, valued the three R's. Reduce, reuse, recycle. They thrifted the decor, bought wedding attire secondhand, and gave leftovers to their guests in takeout containers to reduce food waste. Nothing was off limits, including Mark's cufflinks. He found a designer in the UK. The neat thing about them is they do all of their work with recycled silver. And here's the thing. Silver mining releases carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So recycling reduces the climate impact. And instead of shipping the cufflinks, Mark asked a friend who was already in the UK to bring them back for him. Travel and transportation are responsible for the biggest slice of carbon emissions at weddings. Sure, you can cut down on shipping flowers and cufflinks, but what about people traveling for the special day? Weddings are one of those major life milestones that need to be celebrated, especially with friends and family. So my recommendation is not to cut down on wedding attendance, but there are ways to do it better. Zhang Zhao is the Canada Research Chair in Behavioral Sustainability at the University of British Columbia. She says one way to cut down on flights is to offer a virtual option for the wedding ceremony. But what about immigrants like myself, with so many loved ones living far away? Think about how many people need to fly versus whether it makes more sense for you to fly. If you do need to travel or especially fly for weddings... My suggestion is bundle your trip so that you can make the most out of that flight. Right. So tack on some extra days to spend with family or friends so you can skip a future flight. Holly says you can also use a free online wedding carbon calculator to help balance your carbon footprint with your finances. Food and and alcohol is the one area that I would say is a bit more expensive to get locally sourced. Um, Yeah, all of that is more expensive than like ordering a bottle of Pinot Grigio from from Italy. (laughs) As for the newlyweds, Regina and Mark, their advice? Don't overthink it. I don't think you have to have these grand gestures to have a climate-friendly wedding. I think you can find little tiny ways 
and little small decisions will all add up to something big. For What on Earth, I'm Daniel Piper. Thanks, Danielle. Nice to know that you can do something for the planet on your big day. We do want to know how we can help you help the planet. Do you have a dilemma about dealing with climate change in your life? In the last few months, we've had how-tos on building a go-kit for an emergency, taking a vacation on a cargo ship, and voting with climate in mind. What other questions can we try to answer for you? Email us, earth at cbc.ca, and better yet, record a voice memo and send us that. We love hearing your voice. We might put it on the air. The email again is earth at cbc.ca. We've got some time now for some climate stories in the news this week. Canada's top court has dealt a blow to the federal government's efforts to consider environmental and social impacts of resource and infrastructure projects. Five of the seven justices rule that Ottawa's Impact Assessment Act is largely unconstitutional. The bill, enacted in 2019, has been opposed by many politicians in Alberta. The Chief Justice Richard Wagner wrote that environmental protection is a pressing challenge. But at the same time, he says, Ottawa must revise the legislation to ensure projects reviewed are clearly under federal jurisdiction. We've been talking about flimsy, easy-to-break, impossible-to-repair appliances and electronics over the last few weeks, including our producer Rachel Sanders' now infamous woebegone food processor. And we're still on that story, but this week, California passed a so-called right-to-repair law. It should make it easier for owners to repair their own devices or take them to independent repair shops. Now, this is kind of how it works. It means manufacturers have to supply tools, parts, software, and documentation for seven years after the items are produced. That's if they're worth more than 100 US dollars. Less expensive products have a three-year clock. And of course, you can read more about climate change in the CBC What on Earth newsletter. You can subscribe to have it delivered to your inbox every week. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to What on Earth? I'm Laura Lynch. When Joni Mitchell wrote Big Yellow Taxi, I wonder if she ever expected it would be covered by a six- and nine-year-old to highlight the plight of wetlands. We'll meet the sisters and hear about the paradise they want to protect coming up. Imagine a greener, more sustainable city where all of your daily needs work, school, the hospital, shops, restaurants, community centers, parks they're all just a short walk or bike ride away from where you live. That's the idea behind the 15 minute city. And it's not a new idea, really. But it's also created some controversy, including here in Canada. It all started in the UK last year when Oxford announced a plan to reduce traffic that would involve permits and cameras. A few months later, some people protested against the plan, conflating it with the creation of 15-minute cities. 
On the march in Oxford, protesters from all over the country descended on the city this afternoon to voice their objections to low-traffic neighbourhoods. No one has been consulted about it, and if they have and raised an issue, it's been ignored. It's showing the lack of democracy we have in this country. They'll tell you it's for climate change, it's not for climate change, it's not for air pollution, it's solely to control the public. That's from an ITV news story back in February. And now, months later, the 15-minute city is in the news again. In its Plan for Drivers, released this month, the British government says it plans to stop local governments from using 15-minute cities to, quote, police people's lives. Here's Transport Secretary Mark Harper speaking at the annual Tory party conference just days ago. What is sinister and what we shouldn't tolerate is the idea that local councils can decide how often you go to the shops and that they ration who uses the roads and when and they police it all with CCTV. Carlos Moreno, is that what 50-minute cities are about? No, in fact, it's uh, totally insane to consider that uh, we want to control or limit uh, personal freedoms. It's totally insane to consider that we want to increase surveillance or control of our citizens. Okay, those words, insane. Insane to consider increasing surveillance, controlling citizens. Carlos Moreno, when he says that, he should know what he's talking about because he knows what the 15-minute city is all about. He came up with the idea. And when he first presented it to the world in 2016, he described it as a way for people to not just transform their lifestyles and boost the local economy, but to significantly reduce carbon emissions. Mayors around the world have embraced some version of the concept. In Paris, for example, where Carlos lives and teaches, and in Barcelona, Melbourne. Of course, there are critics. Some urban planners say the concept won't work in cities that have too much urban sprawl. Others worry 15-minute cities would lead to gentrification and segregation. And then there are the conspiracy theorists, people active on social media who claim the 15-minute city is about controlling personal freedoms. Carlos says he and his family have received death threats and been slapped with some odious labels. I have a lot of, lot of uh, examples. You are uh, the new Pol Pot. You are the new Hitler. You are uh, an indigenous because I was born in Colombia. You are a mad guy. I want to, to kill you with uh, your wife, uh, your family. Let's go through that. They, they called you Pol Pot, the Cambodian dictator. They called you Hitler. <laughs> of course, the, the, the uh, Nazi dictator, um, madman. I wanted to kill your wife and your family. The New York Times, you told the New York Times you're no longer seen as a researcher, yes. but as public enemy number one. How are yes. you coping with all of this? At the, at the beginning, I was very surprised because it's not normal that an urbanist received uh, this kind of radical attacks. Uh, at the same time, the social media in reality is not the real life. So, social media not real life. But the British government is. And in a public statement, Carlos says linking 15-minute cities to restricting liberty is essentially lining up behind radical and anti-democratic conspiracy theorists. We asked the British government for its response. It pointed us to an interview the transport secretary did, saying that when it comes to conspiracy theories, he has, quote, no truck 
with that sort of nonsense. I think it's clearly alarming. Now that is Chris Russell. He's with ReClimate, a center for climate communication and engagement at Carleton University in Ottawa. And he says what's happening in the UK is just another example of climate disagreements disintegrating into accusations, threats, misinformation, and conspiracy theories. I think that's bad generally, but especially bad in this case when you have elected or professional politicians playing a significant role in driving engagement with that content and putting, I guess, targets on uh, municipal government workers, emergency managers, um, people that are kind of trying to pursue climate solutions on the ground in these places. And Chris isn't alone in thinking that. This seems like yet another sad example of the other side maligning something that was well-intentioned, thought through, and coming up with really extraordinary lies um, in order to put it to the side. Now that's Michael Koo. He's with the Climate Action Against Disinformation Coalition. Chris and Michael, welcome both of you to What on Earth? Thank you. Before we dive in here, can you just first give us a quick primer on the difference between climate disinformation, misinformation, and conspiracy theories? Sure. I mean, I think that we do a, a pretty sharp distinction between misinformation, which is something your uncle accidentally shares, and disinformation, which is intentional. And if you look at the 40-year history of the fossil fuel industry sowing the seeds of disinformation, uh, that's all been very intentional. and It's all been quite paid for. Um, and now you're seeing, especially in the last 10 years, the amplification on social media of that. But it is all the same phenomenon, and it really is an industry trying to protect itself from the change that we all know is happening. So those are the two. Miss is more of the accidental. Dis is intentional. And then conspiracy theories, unfortunately, are the whole new bucket of research to throw on top of that. Um, and that really is uh, to what you know, Chris has seen as well, the, the, the tying together with, with culture wars, um, where you get groups of people who are fighting against trans rights one day, fighting against Black Lives Matter the next, and day three is climate change. And how are all of those different from political spin and greenwashing? I mean, one broad way of thinking about it is there has been uh, a shift from uh, what we would typically call classic forms of denial of climate science, which is where you see efforts to discredit or delegitimate scientists, scientific reports, um, scientific organizations. Uh, and some of that still exists, but there has been a more, I would say, significant shift over the the past little while towards um, policy delay as the real um, target of this kind of deception, frankly, or obstruction. Uh, and in those cases, you see specific climate solutions um, targeted. So you see on the one hand, some of the conspiracies circulating the 15 minute city conspiracy that popped up in both of these realms, which is a really, I think, fits into the, the, the more recognizable forms of deception. But greenwashing tends to, in, in my understanding, at least, try to position some of these um, actors that are trying to slow down the pace and ambition of the energy transition by presenting themselves as on side with climate action, as a partner with government, um, as in pursuit of, of net zero. You will hear many of these organizations celebrate or trumpet their net zero uh, ambitions um, without much credibility, I would say, or even sincerity in many cases. Can we just stay with the conspiracy yeah. theory question for just a second? Because I'm wondering how unusual it is to see government engage in that kind of thing? Western governments, democratically elected governments, I'm talking about. How, how unusual is it for governments to, to start trading in conspiracy theories? 
I mean, I think if you look historically, it's not that unusual. There, there has been, disinformation has been a part of politics for decades, if not centuries. Um, I think that the part that I really try and focus on with, with our work is to be looking at how the new tools, especially social media, is giving a very small group of people an outsized amount of power. What we're finding out now is that capitalism and politics um, are catching up to it and realizing that these are great tools for oppression and for silencing the majority who want climate action. And they're just being very creative in tying it to any conspiracy theory they, they want. And that's why you get this same group that's so intersectionally against what I would call all forms of progress in, in society um, and really using it to uh, target a minority groups or majority opinions on, uh, on things like uh, climate solutions. Now, Chris, there have long been climate deniers and skeptics, but is there something about what we're seeing and hearing now that feels different to you from what we've witnessed in the past? I think so. I mean, I think um, I think when you're looking at the 15-minute city one and the earlier uh, climate lockdown um, conspiracies, you know, during the pandemic, many governments imposed lockdowns, reduced social interactions, try to slow the spread of the virus. We saw some climate deniers jump on this lockdown idea very early in hopes of rolling up those negative feelings and anxieties and grievances, frustrations with the pandemic, pointing them not at the virus, but at not even at public health mandates, but at climate policies, claiming that climate change would be the, the justification for the next iteration of state overreach, uh, state limitations on movement, pulling freedoms away from citizens, uh, that kind of idea. So I think there is something about the way in which the pandemic has, um, you know, that, that it was hard for everybody um, and the way that there's still a lot of kind of pain, frustration, trauma there. Weaponizing that or pointing that at climate policy, I think, is something very challenging uh, to deal with. Can, can we, Michael, then just try to distinguish one other thing. When the world was first confronting climate in a real way, there were a lot of climate denialists and climate skeptics around. It, are we past that and then now just on to, and I shouldn't say just, but on to climate delay instead of climate denial? It's been a really interesting last four years of studying this, because I think uh, I wanted a year ago to tell the story of the rise and fall of climate denialism. But what we've seen in the last year, especially since Elon Musk took over X, Twitter, um, is actually the rise of straight up climate denialism again. Two presidential candidates who are calling it a hoax. We have alongside that now are seeing this new phenomenon really in the last eight months where straight up climate denial is, is back on the table and is, is the red meat for the primary uh, Republican voter. Do you have any sense of why that might be? Oh, I think it's very... Uh, Clearly, the, it's very clearly that, that we've designed systems that incentivize that behavior. So, By which you're talking about the, social media again. Well, social media, but also actually what we focused a lot in the last year, especially on, is the monetization of uh, climate denial and all, actually, extremism. Is that the ad networks that support these, uh, these uh, websites and social, social networks that focus on the most extreme content... Um, it's, it's, uh, it's what I call dollar store denialism. You know, it's gone down to the lowest <laughs> level and it's trafficking in these really small amounts across tons of sites. And actually Google is the biggest purveyor of that in the research that we see. Um, so it's really, it's a five to $10 billion industry. So we, we have all the wrong incentives in place. 
I want to come back to Google in a second, but I just want to ask you, Chris, do you, do you want to jump in here on that on that point of the denial to the delay? Do you think it's it, denial is making a comeback? I mean, I think there are tactics within a wider problem of obstruction that um, is is delaying is slowing down the pace at which um, energy transition happens, and as we kind of evolve to the next phase of our energy systems. But Michael's point, I think, is a very good one. I think sometimes we think of denial as a problem of rigid ideological commitment. And in, in many cases, it's this more, uh, it's this problem of kind of incentivized engagement, given the, um, the business model of the, the, the platforms he's speaking about. And so that I think actually doesn't have an overly complicated solution once you begin to figure out how to demonetize that content, as he discussed. Okay, well, let's talk about tech a little bit more because um, most of the big tech companies have policies around climate disinformation. Last year, for example, Google announced it will ban ads that contradict uh, well-established scientific consensus around the existence and causes of climate change. That's a quote from Google. Do, do those rules go far enough, either one of you? I think we've we've worked with a, a lot of the platforms, and we just released actually a scorecard on on the top five on on how they fare. Google being right in the middle of, of them all, um, and and I'd say none of them go far enough because we need a lot more transparency. And this is an incredibly opaque industry, an industry who, with a flip of a switch, could reveal all um, mm-hmm. at no cost to them. Um, so we need more transparency on what they're actually doing. As far as the, the policies they have on paper, some of them vary. Pinterest, for example, which is a smaller platform, but they have a very deliberate intent to not have climate disinformation discussions on their platform. Google's policy was much smaller, just focused on the monetization, which we appreciate some of that. But the, the enforcement is a real problem, and that gets back to actually the problem of transparency. So what, the is, the answer? That, what is the answer then? I think we have to stop thinking of tech getting some special privilege in our lives. The things you expect out of a car manufacturer or an airplane manufacturer, the transparency for any of the product fails, the recalls, the accountability when people are harmed, all those basic things that we expect out of almost every other industry need to be put in place on, uh, on top of the tech industry, who at this point has, gets a free pass on almost everything. So that, that suggests a role for government then. Chris, are, are governments motivated to crack down on the spread of climate disinformation? Are, are they motivated? I, I guess it depends on who's sitting, uh, who's, uh, who happens to be running that government. Um, but I think Michael's point about regulating for transparency and accountability, making visible the decisions they're making around the content they amplify or that they remove um, is an absolutely crucial first step. And as Michael said, it's not a huge ask on their part. This is available to researchers that work within these companies. Well, Michael, say, say I'm scrolling through Instagram and I come across something that I think is disinformation. Uh, I mean, I, I know we're talking about higher levels of uh, corporations or governments, but what can I do as an individual? Well, I think, unfortunately, this is a structural problem that shouldn't be put on the individual to solve. Yes, platforms like Twitter and X have things like a program called Birdwatch, where people can community report. And you see that people trying during this uh, new war in Israel, people trying to do that. 
um, but they just get overwhelmed by the volume of disinformation that's been allowed back on that platform. So I, I do think it's important for listeners not to think that it's their problem because it is the system that's been set up. But then but then I, I, I'm, st I'm still struggling with it. I understand what you're saying, but if I want to make a difference as an individual, what, do you just stop using the platform? Do you call them out? I understand what you're saying about what should be done, but is there anything an individual could do? For sure. And I think there's two basic things. One, you can go to a platform that pledges to, and that, that executes a good common sense, uh, like careful conversation. So even look at like a dating app like Bumble, you know, founded on the idea that women online dating have a, un, a naturally unsafe space uh, in history. And so they create a, a platform that is very safe for women. You look at a platform like LinkedIn, their motto is, the only thing you should say here is what you would say to a colleague to their face at work. I mean, that's a fantastic vision for creating a certain community. So people individually can go to those other communities that are popping up here and there. Um, that's one option. And the other is to be political about it and to write your representatives and to say, we need you to finally regulate this industry that is destroying our communities. Okay, this is for both of you. We're a month away from COP28, the annual UN climate conference. There'll be world leaders, there'll be climate, climate scientists, there'll be activists and fossil fuel industry lobbyists there. What will you be watching for as far as disinformation goes? Chris, let's start with you. The things that we've been studying uh, at ReClimate and been concerned with really fall into the, the, the bucket of, I guess, greenwashing or information integrity around um, corporations, around advocates, around lobby groups that present um, oil and gas and fossil fuel companies as committed climate actors. And we're really concerned about the capture of the political process by those actors and lobbyists and intermediaries. And so I think this is this got flagged last year um, through a high-level UN report around net zero greenwashing, really trying to have a more robust uh, and clear set of procedures and definitions for what constitutes a net zero claim. This is a good example, I think, of trying to hold people accountable to the kinds of statements they make. So I think we're going to be awash with that sort of uh, communication, that, that sort of problem as we get closer to the COP. Michael? And I think the, the best way to look at it is to look at who is speaking and look at their positioning. And if it's an oil petrostate or if it's, you know, um, a oil company who have a lot of prominence here, then that sort of tells you what, what, where they come from and helps you evaluate whether to trust uh, what they're saying. All right. Well, I think we'll all be watching closely then. Chris Russell and Michael Koo, thank you very much. Thank, thank you, Laura. It's going to be interesting watching what happens at, at this year's COP meetings and tracking that very kind of thing, how much disinformation is out there, who is presenting it or misinformation. And it will be watched more closely than ever, I think. Just when we were at COP in Glasgow two years ago, there was just the beginning of this increasing scrutiny on who is actually in the room making the decisions and realizing how many of them were representatives of the fossil fuel industry. This time around, it's going to be an unprecedented amount of coverage of that aspect of it. And we will try to bring you as much of that as we can. Every now and then, we feature you, our listeners' suggestions for community climate champions. 
I'm Willow Glim Cannon. I'm nine years old. I am Phoenix Glim Cannon. I am six years old. Willow and Phoenix were nominated by their teacher, Jenna Russell Lowen, because they created a play about wetland conservation. They are just doing everything they can possibly do to do their part in keeping our Earth safe and in informing other people about, about the effects of climate change and what, what they can be doing to help. And they're just so passionate and full of love for the Earth. Phoenix and Willow are with me now, along with their mom, Michaela Cannon, and dad, Peter Glim. Hello. Hi. Uh, Michaela, I'm going to start with you. How does it feel to have your daughters nominated as climate heroes? It's very exciting. They've worked so hard uh, for so long on this project and other projects too on uh, climate action. So it's really neat to see um, people recognizing what they've been doing and and kind of supporting them and, and celebrating, you know, the work that they put in. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited and very proud of them. I'm sure you are. And, and Willow, Jana mentioned you and Phoenix co-wrote a play. Can you tell me what it's about? It's about um, understanding about the wetlands and why we need to keep them. Why is that important? They have a lot of habitat for animals and they stop flooding. If like a flood comes down, they, they're kind of like a sponge. So they, they keep the water in one spot. Right. A lot of animals need them. And they're also very important in filtering our water. Well, you're smart. <laughs> I mean, I only know that now at my ripe old age because I host this show, but I did, certainly didn't know those things at your age. Um, so, Phoenix, I, I understand the idea to write a play came to both of you while you were playing outside. Can you tell me what about that day inspired you and Willow to write the play, which is called Wild Wonder? So, we are seeing that many wetlands were getting destroyed, and we wanted to help them and like make them stay there because we knew wetlands are really important. You were playing and you were pretending to be the animals that day and when you came up with the idea. And at yeah. first it was just going to be a play that we that we made and then performed it for Papa when we got home. Ah, Papa, what did you think when you first saw this production? Uh, I was really excited by the idea. They, um, we do a lot of music as a family too. And so we are getting really excited about kind of what kind of music could be part of the play because it's, it's almost sort of like a musical slash play. And that's and that's where you come in, right? Uh, yeah, I play uh, guitar and and we sing uh, together and we learn songs about um, just kind of environmentally aware and and conscious uh, material. Uh, Willow can tell you about some of the artists that inspire us to do uh, songs and what artists are in the in the play too. There you go, Willow. Tell tell us about that. We took one song from Joni Mitchell. And I really, really, really like her music. And we changed the lyrics a bit so it fitted the play more. Mm-hmm. Can you can you sing me your favorite part? I mean, I think the Joni Mitchell song is about um, paving over paradise, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Can you sing your favorite part? Um. Sure. 
to pay paradise and put up a parking lot with a pink hotel, a boutique, and a swinging hot spot. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you got till it's gone? The pay paradise and put up a parking lot. Boy, I sure hope Joni Mitchell's listening. <laughs> That was great. Well, I would really like to talk with her. (laughs) (laughs) That was just, that was really great. Uh, 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 Mikhail, I I should ask you, just backing up for a second, what what was your first thought when when your girls decided, they came to you and said, we want to produce this play? So, yeah, I thought, fantastic, great. Like, this is going to be so much fun. And um, I didn't realize that it was going to kind of take on a life of its own and become so much bigger. I thought, oh, it would be us. And the kids would like kind of reenact this and then show it for Papa and maybe another family. And then that would be it. And then they kept writing it and they kept adding like the we lines. Yeah. And then they invited friends to come and like join it. And then uh, we reached out to one of the local theater companies and they uh, lent us some amazing costumes. Wow. Do you, do you remember things that, that people have said to you after they've watched your play, Phoenix? The kindergarten kids tried to reenact a diff- another play that was like different than the other one before. So, but it was inspired by our play. Ah. So yeah, so we, we had a performance at a kindergarten class. And after the kindergarten class, all the students, they wanted to come up and try the costumes on. So they came up, tried the costumes on, and then they decided that they wanted to reenact the whole play for us. And that we, the, the cast was going to be the audience and they were going to be the cast. So we yeah. switched roles and then they reenacted the entire play again. That's amazing. Um, Imitation is the so- sincerest form of flattery. <laughs> 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 okay, well, you, you, all four of you, it's been wonderful speaking with you. Um, Michaela, Peter, you've got a couple of great kids on your hands there. <laughs> and uh, congratulations on having a couple of climate heroes in the household. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Is there someone in your community going all out for the planet who you want to let us know about? Email us, earth at cbc.ca. Before we go, I want to let you know what's coming up on the show next week. Having back-to-back years of record mass loss, glacier mass loss, scientists have often said, that we are sliding down a steep slope. Um, in the case of glaciers in Western Canada, we have jumped, literally jumped off a cliff. You've heard it before, global warming is melting glaciers. But next week, we're looking into another way that climate change might be speeding up the melt. And it has to do with wildfires and the smoke they produce. We're heading to the breathtaking peaks of Place Glacier for that story. And as always, we'll search for solutions. Remember, you can listen to all of our episodes on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a review because we read them. And that is all for us this week. The show was put together by Danielle Piper, Rachel Sanders, Vivian Luck, Matthias Wolfson, and Catherine Rolfson. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.